Let's bow together. Father, thank you so much for this morning. You're so good and so gracious, and we so uh, look forward to that day that uh, we will be in your presence, and uh, all because of Christ, who paid the penalty for our sins and reconciled us to you. We're so thankful. And Lord, we just thank you for the opportunity to grow in the grace and knowledge of your Son now, and I pray that we would do so that we would absorb your precious and magnificent promises, that uh, you would use your word to do what is pleasing in our hearts today and help us to understand what you intended so that you would be glorified in our response. We thank you for this uh, time. We commit it to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, we've been studying the book of Second Thessalonians, and we have come to that portion in that book in which we were looking at the Antichrist. And uh, we came within that portion to uh, verse 9, where it talks about the power that is behind him. This is in Second Thessalonians 2.9. The one who's coming, who is in accord with the activity, or literally operative power, of Satan. So I felt it would be good for us, since the Antichrist is empowered and operating by Satan, that we take a look, and this week in a break, and take a look at uh, Satan. And we're going to see today from Ezekiel 28, the rise and fall of Satan, the power behind the Antichrist. Would you turn your Bibles to Ezekiel chapter 28, and we're going to be looking at verses 11 through 19. And within that, uh, you may have been here years ago, 14 years, I think, to be exact, when we studied Ezekiel. And so you may remember the context or maybe not, but I'm going to review it for you. Um, As you know, in Deuteronomy chapter 28, the Lord made it clear that if Israel obeyed in the covenant, they would be blessed. If they cursed, they would be disciplined. And if they, uh, if they, uh, they would be disciplined if they didn't, if they disobeyed and cursed. And so thus the Lord laid clearly the the things that would happen to Israel if they continued in disobedience, that they would be severely disciplined and expelled from the promised land. And uh, the Lord God reveals through his word that unfortunately the Israelites continued to disobey year after year after year. We know that after the kingdoms were divided because of Solomon's sin, we see over time the prophets continue to warn of the impending doom of God's judgment upon the northern kingdom. And that came about when the Assyrians invaded and took them captive in 722 B.C. We see that in 2 Kings 17. And the same was looming for the southern kingdom. And after uh, God uh, continued to warn the southern kingdom of their sin, that they would turn and repent Uh, we see that uh, the southern kingdom began to be taken into captivity. Now, concerning that southern kingdom, it reveals that as they disobeyed, there were three specific uh, sieges and then, in a sense, uh, captivities for the southern kingdom. Three deportations, you could say. First of all, in 605 B.C., Nebuchadnezzar, the rising superpower of the day, uh, took the first set of captives to Babylon, and this included Ezekiel and 10,000 others were taken at that point. And then, and actually the first set of captives actually included, uh, excuse me, Daniel and his friends. And then the second siege in 597, this included Ezekiel and 10,000 captives. And then from 588 to 586 B.C., for 18 months, Nebuchadnezzar sieged Jerusalem again, and that siege ended in the total destruction of the temple. The walls of Jerusalem and the city was torn down, and the majority of Judah was slaughtered. And yet there were some who escaped, as we see, and the others were taken captive. Now, the book of Ezekiel, to understand it, we need to recognize that it is centered around this third and final siege, that 18-month siege, which ended in the ultimate captivity of uh, Judah and the destruction of Jerusalem. The first 24 chapters are the oracles leading up to the siege, which uh, begin with God on the throne uh, and his glory and majesty uh, bringing forth ultimately the judgment and discipline in Israel that would come. We see a picture of that in the first chapter. Then in chapters 25 through 32, there are basically prophecies during that 18-month siege. 
Ezekiel is prophesying in Babylon to those who had already been taken captive while Jerusalem is being sieged. And then chapters 33 to 48 are prophecies after the fall of Jerusalem. So Ezekiel is is prophesying to a captive people concerning the sins of those who are entering into judgment from the living God. An awful siege in which many were killed and many were brutally taken to Babylon. Yet those who were in Judah were still in grievous sin. They were listening to the evil voices of those false prophets who would say, peace and safety, God's not upset with you. God wouldn't do that to you. He wouldn't judge you. He wouldn't discipline you. And through Ezekiel, then, uh, God in many ways made manifest that his judgment was coming and that they would know that he is the Lord one way or another. You see, he exhorted them over and over again to repent because all souls, chapter 18, are his. And the soul that sins will die. And that God takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that they should repent and live. But unfortunately, repentance was far from Jerusalem. God's people were to be a light to the nations, but became a wicked example of depravity and idolatry. And we see in chapter 24, we find the 18-month siege of Jerusalem had begun. The siege in which Nebuchadnezzar began to starve and slaughter the inhabitants of the city. That siege, which I've mentioned, would end in the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple. And it's at this point we enter into the second portion of the book, the oracles during that siege. And in chapter 25, we have prophecies against the surrounding nations who were mocking and thankful uh, in a wicked way that Israel was going through what they were going through. You see, yes, God does discipline his people, but we're not to rejoice in that. The nations were rejoicing in what God was allowing to happen to Israel. And so we have a tour, in a sense, a clockwise circle of the nations that surround Judah, uh, Ammon, Moab, Edom, and Philistia, and the f- future fate of them for their wickedness. And then we see in chapters 26 and 27, the first portion concerning God's judgment against Tyre. And that was a great city of commerce. And then chapter 28, which we're going to look at today, begins with the judgment on the ruler of Tyre, an incredibly arrogant man who thought he was God but died as a man and went to eternal torment. And then we come to our passage where we see the power behind the leader of Tyre. And thus we're going to see the rise and fall of Tyre's ultimate leader, which is Satan. And it's here we see actually the power that is behind and will be behind the Antichrist. So turn again to Ezekiel 28, and we're going to be looking at Chapters uh, 28, verses 11 to 19. Now, as I mentioned, chapters 26 through 28 have to do with Tyre, and Tyre was a city. Now, there were two tires, not like a motorcycle, but two tires. There was a one in the mainland, where we call Lebanon now, and there was a city, an island city, just offshore, built on an island rock. That's the tire that we are speaking of. And remember, God said he would destroy it, and it would never be rebuilt again, and it hasn't been, by the way. Tyre also had its daughters, in a sense, which were on the mainland, those suburbs of that island city. Now, in this island city, it became a great place of commerce and wealth. And it's clear from chapter 27 that the city of Tyre was uh, an incredibly great and powerful, wealthy city. But because of her pride and her worldly glee over the destruction of Jerusalem, uh, that she could benefit financially God promised and would eventually destroy that island city. And so in chapter 27, we have the prophecy of the destruction of Tyre. And then in 28, we have the prophecy of the eternal destruction of its leader. And then that morphs into what we will see today, the power behind the leader of Tyre, which is Satan. So let's start back, and I'm going to read from chapter 28, verse 1, and read into our passage. And you're going to see it's talking about the leader of Tyre, and all of a sudden it changes and talks about someone that cannot be a man. And it's talking about the power behind. Chapter 28, verse 1, The word of the Lord came to me, saying, that's now Ezekiel who's sharing this, Son of man, say to the leader of Tyre, Thus says the Lord God, because your heart is lifted up, and you have said, I am a God, and sit in the seat of God's. In the heart of the seas. Now, you're going to see some parallels between the leader of Tyre and the Antichrist, by the way. You see some there. 
Uh, yet you are a man, not God. And although you make your heart like the heart of God, behold, you are wiser than Daniel. There is no secret that is a match for you. But by your wisdom and understanding, you've acquired riches for yourself and have acquired gold and silver for your treasures. By your great wisdom, by your trade, you have increased your riches. And your heart is lifted up because of your riches. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, because you have made your heart like the heart of God, therefore, behold, I will bring strangers upon you, the most ruthless of nations, and they will draw their swords against the beauty of your wisdom and defile your splendor. They will bring you down to the pit, and you will die the death of those who are slain in the heart of the seas. Will you still say, I am a God in the presence of your slayer? Although you are a man and not God in the hands of those who wound you, you will die the death of the uncircumcised by the hands of strangers, for I have spoken, declares the Lord. Now at this point it moves into a prophecy, I believe, against the power uh, behind the king of Tyre. Notice what it says. Again, the word of the Lord came to me saying, Son of man, this is our passage, take up a lamentation over the king of Tyre and say to him, Thus says the Lord God, You had the seal of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering, the ruby, the topaz, and the diamond, and the barrel, and the onyx, and the jasper, the lapis lazuli, and the turquoise, and the emerald. And the gold and the workmanship of your settings and sockets was in you on the day you were created. They were prepared." You were the anointed cherub who covers. I placed, and I placed you there. You were on the holy mountain of God. You walked in the midst of the stones of fire. You were blameless in your ways from the day you were created until unrighteousness was found in you. By the abundance of your trade, you were internally filled with violence and you sinned. Therefore, I have cast you as profane from the mountain of God and I have destroyed you, O covering cherub from the midst of the stones of fire. Your heart was lifted up because of your beauty. You corrupted your wisdom by reason of your splendor, and I cast you to the ground. I put you before kings that they may see you. By the multitude of your iniquities and the unrighteousness of your trade, you profaned your sanctuaries. Therefore, I have brought fire from the midst of you, and it has consumed you, and you have turned to ashes on the earth in the eyes of all who see you. And all who are among the peoples are appalled at you. All who, excuse me, all who know you among the peoples are appalled at you. You have become terrified and you will be no more. And so here we have God's account, not man's. Man takes this and twists this in its, in his wickedness. But God's account of, as we're going to see, the rise and fall of Satan. And we're going to see Lucifer's sinless beginning, his grand privileges, then his sinful fall and his eternal fate. Now, before we begin, I need to make it clear our desire is not to proclaim Satan here, but to proclaim Christ. But we want to understand what God reveals about our enemy. And for those of you who think about spiritual warfare and things like that, remember the reality is if you're not saved, you are in the domain of darkness, whether you understand it or not. You're in Satan's domain, and it's only through repentance that you'll be uh, uh, come forth and be set free from having been held captive to do his will. Now, let me remind you that uh, the Lord God, through Christ, is the only one who can save you, who can deliver you from that domain of darkness. When Jesus uh, came to Saul of Tarshish on the Damascus Road, he shared what he would be doing through, ultimately, his renamed Paul, and he shares this, and Paul reshares this in uh, Acts 26, verse 18. He's, and Jesus states, he is sending Paul to the, to the Gentiles to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light, from the dominion of Satan to God, in order that they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who have been sanctified by faith in me, Jesus says. Colossians 1.12, for he has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. So the reality is, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, uh, we do not, need not fear Satan, but we need to understand our enemy and what God shares about our enemy. 
Remember, Satan needed permission to shake up Peter. Luke chapter 22, Jesus relays to Peter, Satan has demanded permission to sift you like weak, to shake you up. And what did uh, Jesus say? But I prayed for you that your faith may not fail. It's a faith issue, by the way. And so here we see the reality that Satan needs permission. We see that in the book of Job. That Satan, although he is, as we'll see, the most powerful created being, he needs permission uh, to do what he does. He is still underneath God's sovereign hand, although he has completely rebelled. Remember, greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. So let's go to our passage and let's look at the spiritual force behind the wickedness in this world and thus the Antichrist. Notice his sinless beginning, verse 11. And the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, take up a lamentation against the king of Tyre, and say to him, Thus says the Lord God, You had the seal of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering, the ruby, the topaz, the diamond, and the diamond, the barrel, the onyx, and the jasper, and the lapis lazuli, and the turquoise, and the emerald, and the gold uh, the workmanship of your settings and sockets was in you on the day that you were created, they were prepared. Now, initially it says, take up a lamentation against the king of Tyre. Well, ultimately you're going to see it's morphing into the power that's behind that wicked king who thought he was God, because as you can see here, this can't be speaking of a man. The only blameless man there ever was, was Adam and he sinned. There's never been a blameless man in that sense, uh, from that creation. We see also here that he was perfect and blameless, but also being in Eden, the very garden of God. King of Tyre wasn't in Eden, the garden of God, okay? We also see later on that uh, he is a covering cherub. Folks, that's an angel. That's Satan. That's the type of angel that he is. He's a cherub. We, we see them, they're called cherubim. And so there's no validity for those to say this is speaking merely of a man. It transitions as the scriptures do at times from one thing to what is behind that thing. And that's what's happening here. And we gain information about our enemy here. And some of the things we're going to see here as we look at this is that we understand from his nature how he tries to deceive us. We also understand his fall and that uh, God cannot be blamed for evil. And we also understand that he will be destroyed eternally in the lake of fire. We understand his end. And we need to know that. We need to remember that. Uh, the, Paul had to encourage the, uh, the Romans in light of the, the, the bad guys that were trying to mess them up in chapter 16, and he shares, soon God will crush Satan at your feet. We need to remember that because, yes, he is active and temptation is strong and there is uh, a world that is controlled by the God of this world, Satan. But those things will end and we need to understand that. And so here, let's take a look at his sinless beginning. Verse 11, And the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, take up a lamentation against the king of Tyre and say to him, Thus says the Lord God, You had the seal of perfection full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. And it talks about uh, a little at the end of verse eight, 13, on the day you were created. And then look down uh, verse uh, 15, and you were blameless in your ways and from the day you were created. Satan is not a sovereign God. He is a created being. He is a created being, and God is the one who created everything. We see in Scripture, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And all things came into being, and apart from Him, nothing has come into being. Colossians 1.16, For by Him, speaking of Christ, all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created by Him and for Him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Now we notice from our passage that when he was created on that day, he was created in perfection. He was perfect. Thus says the Lord God, you had the seal of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. The seal of perfection, 
What does that mean here? Well, I think the parallel statement helps out. You had the seal of perfection full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. Hebrew language uses parallelism to strengthen and help us understand concepts. He was perfect in the sense that he was full of wisdom and perfectly beautiful. Very interesting. In Satan's original created form, he was perfect in beauty and had the fullness of wisdom. Now we know in Christ all the fullness of wisdom and deity dwells, right? We know that. But God gave Satan this. He gave them this when he was created. He was full of wisdom. That speaks of abundant wisdom. And we know that came from his creator, as I mentioned, the Lord. Now notice also the text goes further to describe where he was, that he was in Eden. You were in Eden, the garden of God. The term Eden means delight. The term garden simply means an enclosure. We know it was a delightful enclosure until sin entered in, didn't we? And and Satan the tempter, right? It was made for man, for Adam and Eve. And something interesting to ponder is before the creation, uh, there was no fall. And then even during the creation, there was no fall until it was done. We know in Job 38 that the morning stars, this is speaking of angels, and all the sons of God, that speaks of angels, shouted for joy. And I'll read this later. They shouted for joy at the creation that God had made. Satan hadn't fallen yet. He fell after the creation of the heavens and the earth. And so we also see that before his fall, he was in the garden of God. Before his fall, he was in the garden. And then we see also uh, later on in the garden, there were cherubim there also. Remember at the end of uh, after Adam and Eve fell, God sent cherubim of glory to guard the garden. There's angels involved. There were angels in the garden. Now before, so before his fall, he was in the garden, but we know in Genesis 3 that he had fallen, and we'll see in other places his fall. And we see him in the garden also as the serpent later on, the crafty, clever, this one in the garden. Now notice back in our passage in verse 13, he was covered with jewels. Every precious stone was your covering. The ruby, the topaz, the diamond, the beryl, the onyx, the jasper, the lapis lazuli, the turquoise, and the emerald. Satan, before his fall, was clothed with every precious stone. Well, what do we know about precious stones? Why are they beautiful? Is a precious stone beautiful in darkness? No. Precious stones are only beautiful because they reflect light in a beautiful way. And so we have this one, as we're going to see, who was a light bearer or a light reflector in a sense. We know from Isaiah chapter 14, verse 12, that he's called the star of the morning, literally in Hebrew. Now, there's other people that twist this in their uh, wicked theology, but it literally means shining one, means light bearer, Lucifer, light bearer. Star of the morning, shining one, and then he's called Lucifer, which means light bearer. So Satan, before his fall, originally reflected, as we're going to see, the light and glory of the perfect God in a beautiful way. We see in Revelation chapter 21 and 22 that Christ is going to illumine heaven, the Lamb will, right? And we're going to reflect his glory forever and ever for what he's done for us in his son Jesus. We reflect the glory of Christ. So Satan, before he fell, originally reflected, as we're going to see, the light of God's glory in a beautiful way. And then notice this. He was created to praise God in song. Look at the end of verse 13. And the gold, the workmanship of your settings and sockets was in you. Now, this is a difficult portion to translate, but the terms settings... Uh, spoke of really a timbrel or a tambourine. Your, your NASB probably doesn't translate the best, but they say or tambourine there. You'll see that. And then the term sockets really spoke of groove or a hole, which spoke of like a flute in a sense. And the NASB will also say there or flute. These speak of musical uh, abilities and instruments. Now, I prefer the NASB, but I think the New King James does a better job here. The workmanship of your timbrels and your pipes. Timbrels and your pipes. I believe this is referring to his musical capability uh, that God created in Lucifer before, and it was before he fell. 
Now, there are those who have a theology that say Lucifer is probably the worship leader in heaven. That's possible. The Bible doesn't say that. Certainly possible, but we need to be careful not to go where the Bible doesn't say. We don't want to add to it or subtract from it. But we do know that the morning stars and the, the sons of God, that they would sing together. That they would sing. Turn to Job. Job chapter 38. Job chapter 38. And this is where the Lord God is saying to Job, Hey, um, you think you have a right to, to defend yourself and me to justify myself? Hey, where were you when I did all this? Right? He's going to say, Hey, you're not God, I am. That's basically what he's going to say. And, he's going to, and Job's going to repent retract. But in that, this is what the Lord says. Job 38, verse 4. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Where were you, Job? Uh, tell me if you have understanding. Who set its measurements? Since you know, he's being sarcastic there, the Lord is, right? Or who stretched out a line on it? Or where, where were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone? Notice this. When the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy. Singing. If you don't like singing unto God right now, you're going to have a problem later on, which means you probably have a problem already. Probably have a problem already. So then, we gain a little bit concerning our enemy Satan from his initial creation, obviously. We know that he was created to certainly uh, reflect God's glory, and we're going to see later on he's a covering chair. We're going to see later on what we saw about his ability for music. And we need to be careful and not be ignorant concerning our enemy. We're not ignorant of his schemes, of his schemes. You see, he actually uh, mimics and he is a counterfeit and he disguises himself as an angel of light. The Apostle Paul, in addressing false apostles, says this, and he brings in the one behind them, in a sense. 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 13. I'll read this for you. For such men are false apostles. They're bad guys out in the church, by the way. Deceitful workers, workers of deceit, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, or literally don't marvel... Because Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. Therefore, it's not surprising his servants disguise themselves as servants of righteousness, whose end shall be according to their deeds. The reality is he disguises himself. And I believe one of the ways he does so, there's many different ways, is through music in the church. A lot of the so-called worship music is not from God at all. It's satanic. And what do I mean by that? It is earthly, natural, and demonic. It has to do with man's wisdom about God, man's feelings about God, rather than what God has revealed about himself being sung. And Satan is a master counterfeiter. And music fits right into his initial creation. But now it has been corrupted. So obviously he was corrupted by his wisdom and splendor, but certainly he was created to sing and praise in that sense. So back to our text. Notice uh, this beauty and capability and wisdom and praise him came about on the day he was created. Middle of verse 12. Thus says the Lord God, you had the seal of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. Verse 13. You were in Eden, the garden of God, every precious stone. I talked about that. And then he says here, um, all this stuff, and I'll read it actually, the lapis lazuli, the turquoise, the emerald, the gold, the workmanship of your settings and sockets was in you on the day that you were created, they were prepared. He was created, and he is a created being. He is like, in a sense, the prince of Tyre, a man. Now, Satan's not a man, but he's a created being, just like the prince of Tyre was a created being as a man, Satan as an angel. Satan is not God. Satan is not God. Lucifer yet was created perfect without sin by the Lord, Colossians chapter 1. Now notice in our passage we have his grand privileges. Verse 14, you were the anointed cherub who covers. Now in this short statement we can observe a lot about Satan. First of all, he was a cherub. He was a cherub and is a cherub. You say, well, what is a cherub? Well, cherubim are a type of living angelic spirit being that God created. 
They're seen, as I shared earlier, in Genesis chapter 3, 24, and they're guarding the Garden of Eden and the Tree of Life with flaming swords from the, to keep a fallen man, Adam and Eve, out. We see in chapter 3 of, of, chapter of Genesis that God stationed the cherubim there. The cherubim. In Exodus, we see the likeness of two cherubim being made, their faces and their wings covering the mercy seat of the Ark of the Covenant, their likeness being made. Psalm 18, verse 10, the Lord is spoken of riding on a cherub. As I shared earlier in the beginning of this service, uh, the Lord is enthroned, Psalm 99, above the cherubim. Now that lines up with the beginning of Ezekiel, where we see those cherubim, those, and the Lord is above them, enthroned above them. We see the living creatures with four faces, four wings, with the wheels within a wheel, and the expanse above them, where was the very throne of the Lord. And these cherubim reflected the Lord's glory. In Revelation chapter 4, verse 6, they're saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and who is and is to come. Indeed, in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 5, they are called the cherubim of glory, those who were over the ark in a sense, and ultimately that behind that. And so in our text, we see that Lucifer here is the anointed cherub who covers. The anointed speaks of a special position, the special cherub in a sense, a special position, the anointed cherub who Covers. The term cover speaks of covering, obviously. It speaks of hedging or guarding something. It's the special privilege. He was the anointed cherub who covers. And then we see where God placed him. So in some sense, he had a place to cover and guard in the very presence of God. Middle of verse 14, and I placed you there. Satan didn't do it. God did it. He put him where he was. He created him. Okay? You were on the holy mountain of God. Now, I believe grammatically you could say this phrase this way if you translate it literally from the Hebrew. And I set you in the holy mountain of God. That's probably a better translation. Now, certainly Jerusalem was spoken of throughout scriptures as his holy mountain. But yet we see in Psalm 3, God answers from his holy mountain. That's speaking of of heaven. Psalm 3. Verse 2, many are saying in my soul, David writes, there is no salvation for him in God, Selah. But thou, O Lord, art a shield about me, my glory, and the one who lifts my head. I was crying to the Lord with my voice, and he answered me from his holy mountain, Selah. Speaking of his dwelling place in heaven. So then, God placed him there, and he established him, he created him, established him, placed him in a place of privilege. And then notice the latter portion here. It's kind of hard to difficult, but it says to interpret, uh, difficult to interpret. You walked in the midst, <clears throat> excuse me, <coughs> you walked in the midst of the stones of fire. Excuse me for a second. Throat gets dried out talking here. He says in the latter portion of verse 14, you walked in the midst of the stones of fire. Now, this could be referring to the coals of fire between the cherubim in chapter 1 and chapter 10, Ezekiel possibly. <coughs> but what we do know is that fire usually symbolifies, symbolifies, sim- symbolizes God's purifying judgment. And the idea is that Lucifer could walk in the midst of this. He was blameless, as we'll see initially. Verse 15, you were blameless in your ways from the day you were created. So then, Lucifer was created perfect. He was created perfect in wisdom, perfect in beauty. He was covered with jewels reflecting God's glory. He was in Eden. He was created to praise God perfectly in song. He was the anointed cherub who covers on the holy mountain and amidst the stones of fire. He was blameless in all his ways. Now, God wants us to understand this. And if you were paying attention, you would notice those descriptions were all in the past tense. You were. You were. You were. Not he is, but you were. Now, have you ever wondered, did God create evil? Is he responsible for evil? No, he's not. The scripture makes it clear that in the day he was created, Lucifer was created, he was perfect. 
He was blameless in all his ways. And yet God, as we will see, created him with the capacity to choose. He was given a will. And without a will, no one can choose to love and worship and obey. And so don't blame God for evil. We see Satan is behind it. He is the father of evil. He is the father. So what can we apply here? Well, first of all, again, don't blame God for evil. It's not his fault. It's Satan, as we're going to see. And God has allowed it. He will even use that evil and did and is using that evil to accomplish his purposes, although it's not justified. Secondly, we need to know how to respond to our enemy. We are, we stand against, in Christ, the most powerful created being. Uh, these people that go out there and try to rebuke Satan and stuff like that, uh, even Michael the archangel didn't dare pronounce a railing judgment against Satan. Don't get caught up in that uh, charismatic, satanic rigmarole. Christ is greater than Satan, not us. And we need to be very careful. We need to therefore submit to God and resist the devil, and he will flee from us. James. We need to recognize that Satan prowls about like a roaring lion, 1 Peter chapter 5, but resist him firm in the faith. We need to recognize that we're to be strong in the Lord and the strength of his might. We're to put on the full armor of God, which is the truth of what God has done for us, and then holding the shield of faith, trusting in him and the sword of the word, believing what he has said, praying then we are able to stand against the schemes of the devil. We need to recognize the reality that this foe is the greatest of foes, but yet our God is way above him. He is far above every power, authority, and dominion, far above. And he gave his life for us, and he loves us. And the scripture says, greater is he who is in you than he, speaking of Satan, who is in the world. Greater is Christ in you than he who is in the world. So with such a powerful foe, we need to completely walk by faith and make sure we're confessing sin because Satan uses our sin against us very effectively. As Paul would say, we're not ignorant of the schemes of the devil. We know from Ephesians chapter 4 that we are to not give Satan a place you know, we're not to, we're to be angry but not sin. We're not to let the sun go down on our anger or even par, I guess, must, alongside anger, lest we give Satan a place. We're to be forgiving like Second Corinthians. Otherwise, we give Satan a place. We give an advantage. We need to trust the Lord and walk in Him. Otherwise, we are in a dangerous position as believers. We are vulnerable then to His attacks. We need to submit to God and resist the devil. We need to confess sin. We need to humble ourselves before His mighty hand or we are then vulnerable to the attacks. So what happened? What happened? This perfect being, this created being that is uh, the anointed cherub who covers beautiful, uh, perfect in wisdom and beauty and praise for the Lord. Take a look back in our passage. Look at verse 15. You were blameless in all your ways from the day you were created. And then look at this. Until unrighteousness was found in you. By the abundance of your trade. It's interesting, kind of the same terminology as the, the leader of Tyre, the abundance of his trade, which was making money and giving himself glory, right? Um, so abundance of your trade, he says here, you were internally filled with violence, and you sinned. Therefore I have cast you as profane from the mountain of God, and I have destroyed you, O covering cherub, from the midst of the stones of fire. Your heart was lifted up because of your beauty. You corrupted your wisdom by reason of your splendor. I have cast you to the ground. I put you before kings that they may see you. By the multitude of your iniquities in the unrighteousness of your trade, you profaned your sanctuaries. Therefore, I have brought fire from the midst of you. It has consumed you. I have turned you to ashes on the earth in the eyes of all who see you. All who know you among the peoples are appalled at you. You have become terrified and you will be no more. So what's the cause of his fall? Well, he was blameless until unrighteousness was found. And we see here, verse 16, by the abundance of your trade, you were internally filled with violence and you sinned. 
What's the abundance of his trade? I believe it's that he was beautiful and wisdom and splendor. And by those things, he exalted himself, as we will see. And thus we have the result of pride, which is you were internally filled with violence and you sinned. Notice in verse 15, you were blameless in your ways from the day you were created until unrighteousness was found in you. By the abundance of your trade, you were internally filled with violence and you sinned. Look at verse 17 actually now. Verse 17. Your heart was lifted up because of your beauty. You corrupted your wisdom by reason of your splendor. We see Satan's heart was lifted up in pride because of his beauty. It was corrupted by reason of his splendor, his wisdom. Those things that God had created him with. He was corrupted. He was prideful. The attributes that were to give God glory, Satan chose instead to elevate his own heart and give himself glory. And that's the sin of Satan. It's pride. This ought to be a stark warning to us. As we see how the king of uh, Tyre in the beginning of this message, pride comes before fall. If we give ourselves credit for anything, we are prideful. It is God that gives us the ability to do what we do. Satan was lifted up. You can't take a breath without God approving that, by the way. Your heart wouldn't beat one beat without God allowing that to happen. For believers, if God has gifted you, that very same area of gifting could become an area of stumbling and sin. God made Satan beautiful. God made him wise. But Satan was corrupted by reason of his splendor. There'll be temptation to take credit, to fill your heart in pride and self-sufficiency, but that is of Satan. Rest in Christ's strength alone. Do not elevate yourself, but humble yourself before the mighty hand of God. And a person who's thankful is doing that, is giving him the glory and the thanks. If anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. That's what God says. Take heed, you who stand, lest you fall. There's a lot of pride in Christians these days. It's it's just like Satan. It's just like Satan. And you wonder why your life's so messed up. Because Satan's got a foothold in your life, by the way. But if you confess your sins, you humble yourself, draw near to God and resist the devil, he will flee from you. Well, with this in mind, we see that uh, there's another passage also that it describes his fall. Turn to Isaiah chapter 14. And here, God is pronouncing judgment on Babylon and and its king. And during this judgment, he addresses Satan. And we get a glimpse here, like Ezekiel, to Satan when he fell. Now, this passage is difficult because it fades in and out of the king of Babylon, but then ultimately to the force behind him. Kind of the same thing, but a little more difficult to interpret. But let's look at Isaiah chapter 14. Verse 5. The Lord has broken the staff of the wicked, the scepter of rulers, which used to strike the peoples in fury and unceasing strokes. He's talking about Babylon being crushed, by the way. That's what's going to happen there. Which subdued nations in anger and restrained with unrestrained persecution. The whole rest, worth is at rest and quiet. They break forth into shouts of joy. Even the cypress trees rejoice over you, and the cedars of Lebanon saying, Since you were low, laid low, no tree cutter has come against us sheol from beneath is excited over you to meet you when you come and it arouses for you the spirits of the dead and all the leaders of the earth and it rises all the raises all the kings of the nations from their thrones then they will respond and say to you even you have been made as weak as us you have become like us your pomp and the music of your harps have been have brought down to sheol maggots are spread out as your bed beneath you, and worms are your covering. And then notice it points now clearly to speak of Satan at this point in verse 12. How you have fallen uh, from heaven. That's not, the, that's not a man that's fallen from heaven. How you've fallen from heaven, O star of the morning, O son of the dawn. You have been cut down to earth, you who weakened the nations. He was, uh, for a brief moment, uh, uh, speaking of the king of Babylon, but he moves to speak literally of the morning star, which is Lucifer. That's what that's translated from. The king of Babylon was not thrown from earth to heaven, or vice versa. 
This is speaking of Satan. And notice what he says. But you said in your heart, and we're going to see five I wills. Remember, he was corrupted because of his beauty and wisdom. Remember that? But you said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. He wanted to be above all the other angels. Okay? I will sit in the mount of the assembly in the recesses of the north. He wanted to sit on the throne of God, I believe. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. Uh oh. Here, Satan's in his corrupted splendor declares his heart. Notice he says, You said this in your heart. This is what he was saying on the inside. On the inside, which God sees the heart, not man. God sees the heart. And here, in the heart of Satan, in a sense, he sees the inside. It's the heart of pride, it's the sin of Satan, it's also the sin of mankind. That mankind believes he is the Lord of his own life, that he's not accountable to God for anything. Have you come here today with the sin of Satan? If you haven't repented and trusted in Christ, you have. You have, because you have some pride keeping you from humbling yourself to realizing what God says about you and how sinful you are and your need for a Savior, Jesus Christ. I beg you on behalf of Christ to be reconciled to God. For as with Satan, God will eternally punish those whose sins are not forgiven. But the good news is that God sent his son Jesus in your place and he died for your sins. And he destroyed the work of Satan by taking care of sin. So then Satan's heart was filled up because of his beauty and his wisdom and he was corrupted from his splendor and he sinned. He thought he could be like God instead of reflecting God's glory. He sinned. So what are the consequences of his sins? Back in uh, Ezekiel 28, verse 16, By the abundance of your trade you were internally filled with violence and you sinned. Therefore I have cast you as profane from the mountain of God. I have destroyed you, O covering cherub, from the midst of the stones of fire. I have cast you as profane. The word profane means polluted. God took out the polluted trash from heaven and threw it out. Therefore I have cast you as profane from the mountain of God. Middle of verse 16. And I've destroyed you. Oh, He's destroyed in the context of his former privileges. And he will be completely destroyed later. I've destroyed you, O covering cherub, from the midst of the stones of fire. The term destroy here doesn't mean to be annihilated. It means to be destroyed or perish in a sense. To, to be ruined to be ruined. He was destroyed from his former position of, of reflecting God's glory in the mountain of God in the midst of the stones of fire. Verse 17, your heart was lifted up because of your beauty. You corrupted your wisdom by reason of splendor. That's pride. So what did God do? I cast you to the ground. I put you before kings that they may see you. You know, we think we're the center of everything, but there's an angelic conflict going on that's much bigger than us, folks. We think it's everything. we're everything. God cast them, I put you before kings that they may see you. God put Satan before men that they might see who he really is. Who he really is. We have in Revelation uh, what happened when he fell. It says, in another sign, Revelation 12:3, a sign appeared in heaven, a great red dragon having seven heads and ten horns, and on his heads were seven diadems, and his tail swept away a third of the stars of heaven and threw them to earth. When Satan fell, he took a third of the angels with him also. Those are now demons. They're demons. There's different ranks and authorities and all that stuff, structure. Satan's the head of those guys for a while. He got it, but he got it in the context of his judgment coming, imminent judgment. So he was cast out. And it says in verse 18, By the multitude of your iniquities and the unrighteous of your trade, you profaned your sanctuary. He polluted his sanctuary. That speaks of his heavenly dwelling place. Verse 18, in the middle, Therefore I have brought you from, brought fire from the midst of you, and I, it has consumed you. I believe it's speaking of his, God's judgment. It's consumed you. You've been judged. You've been judged. The one who walked amidst, amidst the stones of fire is now consumed by God's judgment. 
having been ejected from heaven to earth. Now, we know from Job he can access it. He can come up. He's here, the God of this world. He, he walks around in Job. Where have you from been walking around on the earth, right? Now, he goes and accesses God, but we know in Revelation chapter 12, in the middle of the tribulation, he will be thrown down for good, and we will rejoice because the accuser of our brethren, who accuses them day and night, has been thrown down. He says, I've turned you to ashes on the earth, end of verse 18, in the eyes of all who see you. Verse 19, all who know you, this is who really know you, not being deceived by all the falsehood, but all who really know you are what? Among the peoples are appalled at you. Is this not true? Everyone who truly knows who he is from Scripture, not from fairy tales and fantasies and, and wicked twisting of things, they are appalled. And he says here, you have become terrified, and you will be no more. That deserves an amen. Amen. He says this word terrified in Hebrew speaks of being a horror a calamity, a dreadful event. You become a dreadful event. You become a whore. Horror. It's not that he's terrified. You become a dreadful event in the eyes of all who see you. Is that not true? God threw Satan to earth and his wick, so his wickedness would be revealed. And within that, it also exposed man's wickedness, didn't it? So notice this fateful future. End of verse 19, and you will be no more. It's wonderful. Satan's been banished, and, he, and, he, and he's been banished to earth, but he will be no more. That doesn't speak of nothingness. No more means he's not going to be able to execute his will in sinfulness anymore. He's going to be tormented, as we will see, day and night in the lake of fire, a place which Jesus said was prepared for the devil and his angels. That's why hell was prepared. It wasn't prepared for human beings. prepared for the devil and his angels. But yet, if you reject Christ, that is your destiny also. Indeed, after the great tribulation, when Christ comes in Revelation 19, then Satan is chained for a thousand years. He's set free for one last rebellion. Then he is thrown into the lake of fire. You see, what God is allowing Satan to do is to cause men to show where they really are. We see that. It's going to happen as we see with the Antichrist. We're going to see them being revealed to where they really are. Turn to Revelation chapter 20. Revelation chapter 20. And this is after Christ comes and defeats his enemies. The beast, the false prophet, are thrown into the lake of fire alive. And he says, I just saw an angel coming down from heaven, having the key of the abyss and a great chain in his hand. And he laid hold of the dragon, the serpent of old, the devil, and Satan. He got all his names there so you, don't, so you know who it is, right? And bound him for a thousand years and threw him into the abyss and shut it and sealed it over him that he should not deceive the nations. That's what he does, deceives, by the way. Any longer, until the thousand years were completed. That's the millennium, thousand years. And after this, he must be released for a short time. And then look at verse 7. And when the thousand years are completed, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations which are on the four corners on the earth, Gogger and Magog, to gather them together for the war. This is the final war, by the way. The number of them is like the sand of the seashore. And they came up to the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints in the beloved city, and fire came down from heaven and devoured them. And the devil who deceived them, was thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are also, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. That's being no more. That's no more being tormented forever and ever. That's his future. That's his future. You see, when the battle gets tough, we need to remember that Satan is the defeated foe and Christ defeated him on the cross. Satan is a defeated foe. 1 John 3, 7, let little children, let no one deceive you. The one who practices righteousness is righteous just as he is righteous. The one who practices sin is of the devil. The devil sinned from the beginning. The Son of Man appeared for this purpose, that he might destroy the works of the devil. Hebrews 2, 14, since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself, speaking of Jesus, likewise partook of the same that through death, that's the death on the cross, he might render powerless or impotent, by the way, is the word, him who had the power of death, that is the devil, 
that he might deliver those through fear of death who are subject to slavery all their lives. You see, Satan has the power of death because in his wickedness, he can righteously say to God, he deserves death because of his sin. But yet God can say, no, in Christ, he's forgiven. It's been paid. We have an advocate for the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. So his power over death in that sense is defeated. But if you don't turn to Christ, then you will die in your sins. And you will have the same lot as the one we're looking at here. God makes it clear that Satan is going to be crushed. Romans chapter 16, this is great. Uh, Let's look at Romans chapter 16, because he's active, Satan is active through men and women in in the body of Christ, even inside it. He's active, but he's going to be crushed. He's going to be crushed. I'm not saying they're believers in the body of Christ. They're in infiltrating. Romans chapter 16, verse 17. And the Apostle Paul said an interesting passage because he's like saying, you know, Phoebe, help me give greeting to so-and-so, give greeting here and there. And then he stops and says this piece, and he goes back to his greetings and finishes the letter. Romans 16, 17. Now I urge you, brethren, keep your eye on those who cause dissensions and hindrances contrary to the teaching you have learned and turn away from them. For such men's are, men are not slaves, excuse me, such men are slaves not of our Lord Christ but of their own appetites. And by their smooth and flattering speech they deceive the hearts of the unsuspecting. For the report of your obedience has reached to all, therefore I'm rejoicing over you. But I want you to be wise in what is good and innocent in what is evil. And the Lord and the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The God of the grace of our Lord Jesus be with you. Our enemy is fallen. He has been judged. He's a defeated foe. Christ defeated him on the cross. And he will be crushed. The eternal crushing of our enemy is sure. So we need not focus on him, but we need to trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. We need to trust in him. You are delivered from Satan by trust in Christ when you believe in him for salvation for sins. And we are delivered from Satan's attacks on us when we trust in Christ. When we believe what he has said, when we rely on Christ. So then we've seen Lucifer's life story. Created perfect, he sinned. The I wills. He thought he could be like God. And God cast him out of heaven to be seen for who he really is. He is a, a horror. He will be no more. From jewels to maggots and worms, from power to absolute weakness, from stones of fire to the fires of hell, all because of pride. And Satan's doom is your doom if you don't repent. God's a gracious God. He gave his son Jesus for you. And if you reject that, your doom is the same. Don't reject uh, the Lord Jesus. There are those who think they know him. They're going to be separated out. Then he will say on those on the left, depart from me, accursed ones, into the eternal fire which has been prepared for the devil and his angels. Trust in Christ and be saved today. Maybe you're religious, but you inside your heart, you give yourself the glory for everything you really do. Maybe that's a sign that you don't know Christ. Trust in the Lord, believe in him, and you'll be saved. Well, for those of us who are believers, I've already shared the application. We need to trust the Lord Jesus Christ. We can't defeat a powerful foe, but Christ in us is greater. And so we need to abide and trust in Christ, putting in the shield of faith and the sword of the word of God, Because we have an enemy that prowls about like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour, but resist him, firm in the faith, the truth that you believe concerning your Savior and what he said about us and the truth from his word. And soon the God of peace will crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus be with you. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you so much that we have been delivered from darkness into the kingdom of your beloved Son. Lord, we willingly uh, were in Satan's domain because of our sin, and you were gracious to convict us and reveal your Son Jesus, the Savior. 
Lord, I pray for anyone here who is truly in Satan's domain. You know their hearts. You see the heart. Lord, I pray today would be the day of salvation, that they would recognize uh, their fate is the same as Satan's if they don't repent. I pray they would turn and believe in your son Jesus and be forgiven and delivered. Lord, you're a gracious God who forgives. And Lord, for those of us who know you, may we trust you. May we rely on your son. May we not give Satan an opportunity through sinfulness in our lives. May we confess our sin and trust in your son Jesus. We thank you. We pray this in his name.